0: Well, Brother Luke, who wrote the gospel that we're studying together this morning and that we've been studying for the last several years, has taken us on quite a journey as we've studied verse by verse through this uh, amazing gospel. Before we get to the passage that we're going to be emphasizing this morning, we only have a a couple of of sermons left in the book of Luke. But before we get to chapter 24, I want us to put our thumb in our Bible and then flip back to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look again at the opening chapter of Luke. Because in that first chapter, uh, the writer of this gospel recorded some great promises uh, that he guaranteed would happen as we follow along in the story of Jesus. And as we've been reading, uh, I want us to look back on those promises and see how God has fulfilled them in his, uh, in his work in Jesus Christ's life. So you'll recall, recall in uh, chapter 1, an, an angel of the Lord appeared to Mary, a young virgin of Israel, a, a young lady, who had not yet laid with a man. She was betrothed to be married, but had never known a man. And this angel that appeared to Mary revealed to to her that God would soon bring a special child her way. And this was a shock to her. It was going to be a child of miraculous birth brought by the Holy Spirit. And of that child, the angel said, and this is in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, uh, Luke said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So as we've walked through this gospel together, we have read of the birth of Jesus Christ. We have witnessed That miraculous advent when Jesus came and took on flesh and that little baby was born in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem. And we've seen him grow up. We've read in the book of Luke how he he increased in wisdom and in stature before both God and men. We've seen as he has preached amazing sermons that declare the, the bold truths of God and how he has healed those who are sick and has performed signs and wonders and shown that he could heal Heal those who are ill, even though medicine cannot heal them. He can he can speak to a storm and cause winds and waves to subside before him. We've seen that he has power not only just the physical world, but also over the spiritual world as well, as he has cast out demons, as he has faced down the temptations of Satan, and as he has declared that he has power to even call in legions of angels if he needs them. This God has has shown himself to be Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Jesus has walked among us in ways that he's fulfilled these promises of Scripture that were delivered to us in Luke chapter 1. Even as we have witnessed in these last few chapters of Luke, his suffering and his trials, even as we have witnessed him uh, in agony and pain and as he has been killed on a cross, we've, we've seen these promises fulfilled. Because Jesus did not stay in the grave, he overcame his death and rose again, and by doing so showed us his immortality. He showed us that he could indeed be that high king who ruled from the line of David, but ruled not for a season or for a lifetime, but forever. He is the eternal king of God's kingdom. Also in chapter 1, we are told that God intended to work out salvation through this special son, salvation for faithful people who would trust in Jesus Christ. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied in chapter 1, verses 77 and 78 and said this, That Jesus would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And that is exactly what we're going to see Jesus do today in the passage of Scripture. We're going to be studying together at Luke 24, back at the end of this wonderful gospel. Jesus is about to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins, and not just to the 12 or the 11, and not just to the the additional disciples that had gathered, but he's going to commission his people to rise up with the testimony of what he has done and of who he is and to send it out into the world. As this wonderful gospel comes to its conclusion, we're going to read today the fulfillment of that powerful promise in chapter 24. It is now time for Jesus to give the knowledge of that salvation to his people, not only to the disciples, but to the whole world. And he does that by giving them a commission, a great commission that his church will fulfill in the age of the covenant of grace. So let's look in Luke chapter 24. We're going to be reading today verses 44 through 49. And we're going to trust that the Lord God is going to bless this this knowledge, this wisdom to our hearts and help us to understand it. Starting in verse 44. Then the risen Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. (coughs) And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus begins this charge to his disciples by speaking about himself in the past tense. He says, While I was still with you, which might seem a little ironic because he's standing right there. And we already established last week the resurre- resurrection was a physical resurrection. So it's not an image of Jesus or some spiritual Jesus that there that is there. It's his physical body risen from the grave, present before them. But what he's saying there when he says, while I was still with you, meaning while I was here in an earthly way, the same that you are, before I was glorified, before I suffered and died and rose again, while I was teaching you and training you and preparing you for this moment. He might, he's, he's, is. In just a few um, moments, he's going to ascend and be with the Father. And so he's warning them that that things are about to change, that he will not be with them there on earth forever, that he's going to reign at the right hand of, of God the Father in heaven. And so he's saying, while I was still with you, I trained you and readied you for what you're about to experience. See, he wants his disciples to know that everything that was written about him in Scripture must be fulfilled. Notice that when he says this, the Son of Man mentions each of the three major divisions of the Old Testament Scripture. He has been written about in the law. That means the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is the law. He has been written about in the prophets that encompasses both the major and the minor prophets. We're talking about Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. We're talking about Amos and Joel and Obadiah and all those men to whom the word of God has come by which he has made his will known to people like us. So Jesus has been preached in the law. He has been recorded in the prophets and he's been pointed towards in also the Psalms, the holy scriptures by which we sing praise to the Lord God and acknowledge his truth by by lifting up song to him. (coughs) So laying claim to the three-part witness of the Old Testament assures us that there is no part of the written word that does not apply to the Messiah. Though it might not be evident at first, all of God's scripture is encompassing the the great plan of redemption that God would would make happen in the life of Jesus Christ. He brings it into reality through Christ. And so the law, the Pentateuch, that, 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 that section of scripture that tells the Israelites how they are to live in fellowship and communion with God as His people, talked about Jesus. We see evidence of this in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. We know that in the Old Testament law that the Jews were called to bring sacrifices to the Lord God in observance of their sinfulness towards Him. As they came repentant with hearts that wanted to turn from their sin, they were to bring a lamb or a goat. And that animal would be sacrificed to help teach them and enforce to them that their sin was so serious that the wage of sin is death. When that animal's life was ended and its blood was spilled, they learned the severity of their sin and they learned to not take it lightly. And so Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Now, In that system of sacrifice, God was training the hearts of Israel to realize they needed someone to pay the penalty of their sins for them. Granted, a a goat or a sheep or, or an ox could never equal the value of the life of a man or a woman because we are made in the image of God. So that system was teaching them and pointing forward to what God would provide for them in His own Son, Jesus Christ. They didn't know that Jesus would give his only begotten son yet, although he, he gave them clear signs that would make that make sense when he revealed the truth later. We talked a, a few weeks ago about Isaac, the son of Abraham, and how God called him to bring and, and, and sacrifice Abraham on the mountain. Uh, and then before it actually happened, God stopped his hand and said, I wanted you to do that to show obedience, but what's really going on is I am the one who's going to send my only begotten son to atone for your sin. So that whole sacrificial system, everything that is laid out in the Old Testament law pointed forward to the fact that we need Jesus Christ. We need someone who is perfect and pure to give himself as a sacrifice to substitute for our guilt so that we might be released from the debt that we owe to God. And as we read through the Old Testament law, we can see that every regulation that God gave to Israel, the commandments by which they were to live, were designed them to help uh, was designed to help them understand the very nature and character of God. So they're told not to bear false witness and false testimony because God cannot lie, and neither will his Son, Jesus Christ, who keeps every law. They are told to not commit uh, adultery because God is in always faithful to his people, just as Jesus Christ would in always be faithful to the Father as he walked this earth, never forsaking the law, but instead fulfilling it with his obedience and with his, with his every um, loving decision. So the law speaks of Jesus in all parts. The prophets also declared in mighty ways the works that Jesus would do in his life. Just one such example is found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. It says, Behold, the days are coming, and declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah was talking about this new covenant that Jesus takes hold of in that night before he was betrayed. In that upper room when he was observing the the Passover meal with his men, and he took those elements, the bread and the juice, and he says, from now on I'm giving you a new gift, something by which you will remember what I'm about to do for you. And he says, this is going to be called communion. You're going to take of these elements... Because you're going to see that I, in fact, am the one who will spill my blood so that you can enter into a new living covenant of grace with me. By his own blood, he covenants with his church to be redeemed from their sins. And so Jesus instituted that sacrament as a celebration of what he would do. So way back in in Jeremiah 31, it's already pointing forward to the Lord Jesus and what he would do when he came to this earth. And when Jesus bore his cross to Calvary and endured great suffering for us, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, another prophet, was was clearly in the people's minds as we learn that Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with much grief. And we see that he was willing to take upon the guilt of the world, upon his own shoulders, so that we would be redeemed. All of Scripture points forward to his saving work, including the Psalms. The Psalms reveal Christ as well. When we look at those verses uh, that David and the other psalmists wrote, we see things uh, like Psalm 2, verses 6 through 7, where it is written, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Th- those echo the words of Christ in John 3:16, where it says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Psalms point forward to the work of Christ. Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so the Psalms pointed forward to to the the shame that Jesus would have to endure when his own people rejected him as Messiah and said that he was a false Messiah and said that he was not truly of God. And yet he rose from the grave, triumphant over their, their aims to destroy him, to get rid of him, He rose again and now he rests as that chief cornerstone. The whole church is built upon the work of Jesus Christ. The Psalms warned that like prophets of old, the chosen one of God would not be accepted and yet he would overcome that to become our foundation. And so the, the Psalms also look forward to very specific works of the Messiah. For instance, in Psalm 69, we read that Jesus would... Go and cleanse the temple because of the zeal that he had for his father's house. In Psalm 107, we we read that this Messiah would have the power to calm the raging sea. And that's exactly what he did. He spoke and the winds and the waves obeyed him. We read in Psalm 68 uh, that the anointed one would ascend to be at the right hand of God the Father. And in just a few verses from now, we will read that he does that very thing. That he leaves these disciples here to continue the work of the expanding church and the far-reaching kingdom and he will go to be with the Father in heaven. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, there is no part of the written word that doesn't apply to the Messiah. And Jesus takes some total of that Old Testament scripture and he opens their mind to understand how these scriptures apply to him. This is the second time in chapter 24 that Jesus has had to take the time to do something like this, isn't it? And just a couple weeks ago, we read about the the travelers on the road to Emmaus. And and they were all distraught, and they didn't know if they could believe that Jesus was the Messiah anymore. And Jesus, in disguise, met with them and just began to preach from what? From the Old Testament Scripture. And He opened their eyes to the things that they could could not see before. How their hearts burned within their chests as He told them about Jesus Christ from the Old Testament Scripture. You remember when, when they shared that with the other disciples. The Emmaus travelers struggled to believe the Holy Scriptures. They couldn't believe that they were real. Luke 24, 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. So he had to help them believe. He had to bring them along in their faith. They didn't have enough faith to trust the way that they needed to. And so they had to rely on Jesus to give them belief and faith. And here we see that the disciples, the other disciples that he's gathered to meet with now, they had not understood the Holy Scriptures. The two travelers didn't believe. These many disciples didn't understand the Holy Scriptures. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Friends, we've got to come to terms with something today. We need to understand that our minds, our human intellect, is naturally closed off to the things of eternity. We are not seeking God naturally from the goodness of our hearts. In fact, if you are here today desiring to know more about the Lord God, it is because something has happened on a spiritual level. A power greater than yourself is calling your name and drawing you near to Him. Psalm 14 verses 2 through 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And this is the result of his survey. He looks down and sees all the hearts of men. And verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That language cannot be more absolute, friends. There is no one who walks the earth that of their own heart and of their own volition understands the Lord or even seeks to understand Him. What a terribly vulnerable state we are born into. That we are in a world where our only hope is in Him and our minds don't want to have anything to do with Him. Who has the brains, the intellectual capacity to grasp the nature of God and to decipher His plans? The greatest minds in the world cannot crack the mysteries of God lest He reveal them to Him. According to this psalm, which is quoted in Romans 3 also, as the Apostle Paul teaches us about sin, there isn't a single one who understands on their own. And so salvation, we have to come to terms with this. Salvation is not a process by which we figure out who has the right mental capacity to decipher the evidence and prove to themselves that Jesus is truly the Son of God. That is not what salvation is. We don't come in here to see who really has what it takes to understand the truth because all of us would fall short of that. Rather, salvation is a process whereby God intervenes in our sinfulness. He helps the blindness of disbelief fall from our eyes and enables us to think differently about our own sin and about God's plan for salvation. That is what salvation is all about. Jesus revealing the truth to us when we could not get to it ourselves. That's a humbling thought. It's humbling to step back and realize that we cannot think ourselves into heaven. We can't look at all the evidence and consider all the options and through our firm reasoning and our our wonderfully complicated and complex minds work it out like some sort of a math equation. It doesn't happen. And that flies in the face of of what our culture teaches us because the world around us is, is embracing this philosophy that is often called secular humanism. This idea that evolutionary forces are at work to make living creatures better and better and better over millions and millions of years and that human beings are the pinnacle of that development. That's what we're taught in public school. That's what many people in the world desire to embrace, that there is no greater intellect than our own. And the scripture humbles us and says, you're made in the image of God, but you're not a God. There is one who is greater than you. There is one who has a plan for all of existence and you will not reach to that plan unless he brings it down to you. So how does that fact affect the way we live out our faith? I consider myself that I have five little boys. How does a mom or a dad, how do they approach their children differently knowing that the mind of man does not seek the things of the Lord naturally? Well, let me give you a couple of suggestions. First of all, That means that we don't need to wait until our kids are smart enough to get the gospel because none of us are. So these parents that say, I'll teach my kids one day about this when they can get it. That's not the right strategy. The Lord is the one who illuminates us. The Lord is the one who reveals truth. So it is our job as mother and father of children to preach the true gospel to our kids as soon as we get them into our care. We begin to teach the truth of the gospel of Jesus regardless of whether we think they're intellectually ready for it. We don't wait for the bar mitzvah. We don't wait till they're 14 or 13 or whatever. the write of passage and then start teaching about Jesus. No, it's too late. We've got to begin showing them the truth as soon as they come into our care. And whether or not they get it, that's all right. Continue to pray that the Lord would open their eyes to the things that they need to see. And that's why we invite moms and dads to bring their kids into service with them. You know, I, I, I know that at times it can be a little distracting. We had a little one in first service that was going like, for about 15 minutes straight. So I know what it's like, right? I'm trying to preach. I'm trying not to like be distracted by that. But I love that. I love that because that little baby that can't even speak English yet is already experiencing the love of God poured out onto them through the word. And these little ones, you don't know how much they are holding on to. You don't know how much of that is being impressed upon their heart. So we love to see children in here with us in big church. We love Sunday school as well. and We fully support the training they get there. But there's nothing wrong with bringing your kids into big church when they're little. We love that fact. It's why we teach our teenagers real doctrine. If you come to our our youth group activities... It's not just a fun and games thing with a little 10-minute devotional on the side. We really teach the Word to our teens because we want them to know the truth. And you can't just tell us, well, they're not old enough yet, they're not mature enough yet. That has nothing to do with it. The intellect of man is not what makes you get it or not get it. So we teach and we pray for them. We pray diligently for these young ones that God would open their eyes and give them the vision of what they need to understand. This truth also means that we we approach this teaching of our children humbly. We cannot overpower their ignorance of the Lord. It is only the power of the Holy Spirit that can give them clarity and enlightenment. So we cannot make them understand. That should humble us. That should make us realize that this is beyond our ability. And, and when I see my little boys and I think, man, I, I want them so badly to know the Lord, I'm greatly encouraged by the fact that it doesn't rise or fall on how good a dad I am. If you're saved today, it's not because you had a great dad or a great mom. It's not because some excellent preacher convinced you about Jesus. It's because the Lord worked in your heart. Now, he might have used those different people in beautiful and wonderful ways to assist that process. But ultimately, it doesn't rest upon any man's shoulders to save another man. We have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to simply preach the truth. God is the only one who knows who is elect and who is not elect. We don't have that information, so we must approach approach every individual with the true gospel and then let the Holy Spirit work the way that it will work. Because only God can make it possible for us to understand Scripture. We've got to teach it prayerfully. It's not enough to just give the lesson. We've also got to be appealing to the Lord that the one we're trying to teach is hearing and is absorbing and is receiving and accepting what we have to give to them. So this is an interesting reality that should affect the way we parent our children. It should also go beyond the walls of our own homes because we don't just love the fraternity that God has given to us. We don't just love those who are blood relation to us, but we are called to love all the people that God has made. And we are called to look out into the world and see the lostness of unbelief and to, with compassion, go to them and share the gospel. So how does this knowledge that the people we're reaching out to in in evangelistic ways, how does it affect the way we reach out to them if their hearts are not seeking the Lord naturally? Well, it also makes an impact there. And this question's important because Jesus is about to commission His followers to put their testimony to good use. He's about to send them out into the world. And so we need to recognize, first and foremost, church, that reason, human intellect, is not king over us. Your mind is a beautiful thing, very complex, but human logic falls short of understanding all the mysteries of reality. And we've got to learn to have a certain degree of skepticism to our own reason. Instead of being skeptical of everything outside of our own brain, we also need to be skeptical about what we think and feel because we don't always see things accurately, do we? We interpret with our senses, the world around us. And sometimes we take that data and we do some squirrely things with it so that reality kind of looks the way we want it to look. We don't always see things the way that they are. And since we don't naturally desire the things of God, we've got to realize that the best thing we could do to somebody else is to help them to trust the one who thinks better than them, to trust the one that's got a better picture of what really is, and that someone is the Lord God. So, friends, when we evangelize, we have to be careful not to put too much stock in arguments that we get so wrapped up in the scholastic and intellectual and try to win somebody to the Lord through an airtight legal defense of Jesus. Rather, what we should do is, in all ways, seek to point people to the greatness of God. It's not just about answering a scientific question. It's about helping people to see that Jesus is greater than science. He is greater th- than the world that He has created. Science bows before him. remember he speaks the winds, the waves they stop. That's not like something you can do in a lab. That's something you can do when you're God. And so we need to bring people to the greatness of God and let them behold the mighty one that we worship. It doesn't mean we chuck logic out the window or, or just worship with blind eyes and, 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 and uh, Opt out of these intellectual conversations. No. It just simply means that the end is not the answer. In fact, uh, Rabbi Zacharias, who is um, a Christian apologetics um, expert, that I, I love what he has to say. He says, you're not answering a question when you engage in evangelism. You're answering the answering the questioner. You need to tune yourself to answer the heart of the questioner. There's some reason why that person's Asking these questions. There's some fear they have about God. There's something they misunderstand about Him. And that's why they keep asking these questions. So try to learn the heart of the person that you're engaging with so that you're not just saying, oh, okay, here's why evolution doesn't work. Okay, here's why the resurrection is physically possible. But instead, you're helping them to see that there is is a desire there. There's a need. There is a, a hole that the Lord alone can fill. So you're not just answering the question we've got to be answering the questioner. We've got to be pointing them to Jesus Christ and the power of God. This church was founded by a man named Larry Webb and uh, I want to share with you a wonderful story about how he was reaching out to a certain person who was coming to our congregation. This man was not a believer. In fact, he was a very intellectual, intelligent man who was fond of a lady who was coming to our church and he kind of sensed pretty early on that if he didn't love the Lord, there wasn't going to be anything really possible between the two of them? So he says, well, then let me come to church with you. She's not going to say no, so she invites him to come to church. And this man, his name was Michael, he came to church, and Pastor Larry introduced himself, and Larry knew that this lady was trying to reach out to this guy with the gospel. He said, what are you doing after church? Why don't you come out to lunch? We'll go and eat lunch together. So the three of them, and actually the four of them, Larry and his wife, went to lunch together. And he knew that Michael was an intellectual guy, and so he said, "What do you think about what I preach today? What do you think about Scripture?" And Michael says, "Well, I got a lot of ideas, but I don't want to take up lunch time. Let's, uh, let's just get to know each other. And, and, uh, and Larry saw through that, he says, "I got all day." <laughs> and my favorite thing to do is to talk about Jesus Christ. So you're not putting me out." So Michael leaned back in his chair and he just started asking questions. And they were there for about two and a half hours at lunch and they just kept talking back and forth about Jesus and and he would bring up a question about this and he'd bring up a question about that, a skepticism about that. And each time Larry did his very best to answer and if he didn't have an exact answer for Michael, he said, I promise I'm going to write that down, I'm going to go look it up and I'll see what I can do for you. And at the end of that conversation, Michael said, "I, I really enjoyed this, this was fun. And Larry said, I enjoyed it too. Let's meet again next Sunday and what I want you to do is I want you to start reading I want you to start reading your scripture. And I want you to just write down all the questions that you have and bring them to me next time. And we'll, we'll answer more of your questions because I want you to know God. And so Michael took him at his word. He went and started reading the scripture. And he came back to lunch this next week with several pages of questions. And he sat there and basically grilled Pastor Larry. And if you know Pastor Larry, Pastor Larry was in seventh heaven. That's what he <laughs> Nothing better than a Bible pop quiz for Pastor Larry, okay? So he just sat there and every question was was met with either a good biblical answer or a promise to find it. And they met two or three times like this, page after page of questions, until finally Larry looked at Michael from across the table and he says, I'm really glad you're getting answers to the questions that you have. But you do realize that this God that I'm trying to introduce you to is infinite. So the number of questions that you'll have about him is also infinite. Infinite. Eventually, at some point, you're going to have to see what you've seen and be able to see the work of God in my life and the lives of other people around you. And you're going to have to ask yourself, do I trust this God? Will I put my faith and hope in this God? Do I believe that He is bigger than me? That He is the only one who knows how to save me? Can I trust His plan for salvation? Did He rise from the grave? Do I believe this biblical truth? That doesn't mean you stop asking questions, but are you going to put your faith in Jesus Christ? Michael stopped and started to really consider that question. And a couple days later, he called Pastor Larry and says, I've given myself to Jesus. But I'm still going to ask you questions every time I see you. So we, we see there an intellectual who could have just kept that going forever. But ultimately, it's not just about those questions. It's about the questioner's heart. And we have to let that individual see that without a faith in Jesus Christ, all that knowledge that they gain by answering their questions doesn't really get them any closer to heaven. We need to to let go of the fear that we have that we don't have enough intellectual capital to share the gospel with others. The fact that we see here that that Jesus gave them understanding means that you might not have a natural IQ of 130. And there is a, a church of people all around you who are varying levels of intellectual ability in the eyes of the world But don't forget who God used to preach the gospel. He used a bunch of fishermen, tax collector, a zealot. He used normal people. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, when they go and preach into the different provinces around Jerusalem, people see them preach and hear them and say, how are they preaching like this? We know they're uneducated men. So they didn't go off to seminary and then start church. They were made wise by the Lord God. So when you think to yourself, I want to share the gospel with my neighbor, but I'm so afraid I won't have the answer, you you might not, you probably won't. You won't have every answer to every question they have. But you probably know a lot more about the true gospel than they do. Because if you're a believer, the Lord has opened your eyes to things that the world just cannot see without the Holy Spirit. So if you know 1% of the gospel, then get out there and preach 1% of the gospel. And if you find in in your sharing of what you know that you need to know more, let that be fueled to get you into the Word so that you'll learn more and you'll be better prepared. But don't let this whole idea that, well, we've got smart people in the church so they can share the gospel, but the rest of us are going to you know, sweep the floors and watch the babies and do the other stuff that doesn't require a lot of training. Let that go out the window. God can use any one of us to share the gospel with people as long as we have the Holy Spirit. And, and then finally, this, this reality that God is the one who illuminates and gives us understanding should cause us to come across with more humility when we engage in the intellectual arena. When people come at us with questions, even if we have the answer, let us not be so brash as to flex our knowledge like muscle and intimidate the other person or make them feel dumb. The goal is speaking the truth in love. Remember, if you know something about Christ, something real, He gave it to you. You didn't earn it. So don't come across as arrogant, or as some intellectual powerhouse, but in all things, submit to the will of the Lord and humbly thank Him for whatever knowledge He chooses to give you. See, our comprehension of God's truth does not come from within, it comes from above. The scripture is very clear on this. Let me read you a passage from James chapter 3. Starting in verse 13, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and unspiritual, demonic. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not despair if you're not a naturally gifted thinker. Do not discount yourself from serving God in wisdom, because God is the one who enlightens those whom he makes wise. Think of Solomon who the scripture says was the wisest man who had ever walked the face of the earth. He wasn't born that way. He didn't gain that wisdom in school. The Lord God approached him as his father was dying and he was going to take over the throne. The Lord God approached him and said, ask of me one thing that will make you a better king and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, Lord, I know the thing I need from you more than anything else is wisdom. And so God provided what he lacked. For the naturally gifted mind, be humble. The studies that you make in the Word will avail you nothing if you are not engaged in a trusting reliance upon the Savior, who alone can illuminate and sow understanding in our stubborn minds. When you seek the Lord in truth and you desire to learn more, that is a noble effort. That is a noble thing to do. And I pray that each of you is seeking Him, to to want to grow in wisdom and in knowledge, but seek it always knowing that you are learning a person. You're not just learning a fact. You're learning a God. You're not just learning a theology. Pursue the heart of the Lord God and pray that He would give you eyes to see what you need to see. Having opened their eyes to the truth of the Old Testament Scripture, Jesus begins to lay out some instructions for what the disciples are to do once Jesus leaves the earth. We've heard this called in other places, the Great Commission. Have you all heard that before? Great Commission? Usually in the modern church in the West, we associate that with one passage of Scripture, which is in Matthew chapter 28. And so I'm going to read that to you. It says, starting in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is kind of the standard, when you think Great Commission, that's what you hear, that's what you think in your head. Now Luke has his own Great Commission and it's not so much as his Great Commission's different than the one in Matthew, but it's more streamlined. Don't forget that when Luke was written, it wasn't written as just Luke. Luke wrote Luke and then a companion volume acts together with it. So it was supposed to be read together in one, in one fell swoop. And the book of Acts is essentially the works of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles. So the the book of Acts illuminates the Great Commission. It shows you how it was lived out. He didn't need to be as specific about it in his gospel's end because that's not where the story ended for him. Matthew knew that was the last chapter of his book. So he needed to be a little bit more detailed about exactly what the Great Commission was supposed to accomplish. Nevertheless, the heart and the soul of the Great Commission is present here also in Luke's record. Look at Luke's Great Commission, starting in verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So he begins that by saying, thus it is written. So he wants to connect our thinking to the Old Testament. He's saying, look, this is not so much a new Great Commission. It is the fulfillment of all that has been written. All that I just showed you in the Old Testament continues to see its reality in this Great Commission, this truth that Jesus Christ is indeed who He said He would be. Because Jesus suffered unto death and rose from the dead according to His promise, repentance should be preached so that the forgiveness of sin might occur. When people from all nations respond with faithful repentance, they will be saved. You might notice that for so long we've been working towards the end of Luke and this whole time Jesus has been pointing us towards Jerusalem. So in our minds, it's almost as if Jerusalem's the end of the road. That's where the cross happens. That's the end of Jesus' earthly mission here. But here we see in the Great Commission that Luke gives to us that Jerusalem then becomes the beginning. It becomes the beginning of the spread of of the New Testament church from Jerusalem out into all the nations of the world, the gospel message is to be preached. And we see a picture here of this beautiful universality in the gospel that Luke has been consistent from beginning to end in making clear to us that this gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ was never intended to be just a blessing for ethnic Israel. But rather, from the very beginning, God knew that he would bless all the nations of the world through his son, Jesus Christ, who happens to be from the bloodline of David, and has to be a national Jew, but that all who trusted in him would be blessed. Do you remember that God made a covenant with Abraham? That he told his faithful friend that he would give him a son? And that's what he and his wife Sarah had had prayed for, that they would get a son, that they would have a, a family line to continue on their name. But God's blessing for Abraham was greater and bigger than just one son. God told him, through your bloodline, through Isaac, all the nations of the world will be blessed. All the nations. God had it in mind to save all different types of people through the work of his son Jesus Christ And so all the way back in Luke chapter 2, you might remember that Jesus, a a young boy, an infant, brought to the temple to be blessed, met an old man named Simeon, and Simeon prophesied over him. This man had been shown something by the Lord God, God had revealed that he would give him a a vision of the Messiah before he died. And so in verse 29 of Luke 2, Simeon says over Jesus, who he holds in his hands, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. For the Gentiles, where did that come from? Simeon had been made it had been made clear to Simeon, and Luke wants to make sure that those who want to know Jesus know that this is a part of the plan that all the Gentiles can be blessed through Jesus Christ and His work as well. We see that all the way back in Luke two. And then as Jesus begins to preach in his earliest ministries, he preaches in his hometown, Nazareth, where he's shown no honor. And part of the reason he's shown no honor there is because in his sermon, he notes that Elijah and Elisha both blessed Gentile people in their ministries. And that the people were so upset that he would focus on that blessing, insinuating that somehow God's hand was on not just ethnic Israel, but also these other foreign peoples of the world. In Luke 17, only the Samaritan leper. Of all the ten lepers that are healed by Jesus in this miraculous moment, only one comes back. And it's not the Jewish lepers. It's the Samaritan. It's the one outside of the boundaries of ethnic Israel. It's the one who doesn't deserve to be a part of the kingdom. God makes him whole again. He heals him. And that man comes back and praises God and thanks the Lord Jesus for the healing that has been brought in his life. And then... In verse 24 earlier, in this chapter 24 of Luke, it was written, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Luke is consistently bringing into the picture, no, this is not just about those who have Israelite blood coursing through their veins. It's those who will love the God of Israel and make Him their God. And in doing so, in surrendering to His sovereign will over their lives, he makes them his children and makes them a part of real Israel. In verses 48 through 49, Christ begins to express his personal expectations about what the disciples are to do after he ascends to be in heaven with the Father. And it says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed With power from on high. This passage concludes with a declaration and a command. A declaration and a command. First, the declaration. Jesus declares that those who desire to testify to the truth of the gospel must know the resurrected Jesus and bear witness of him to other people. You are witnesses of these things in verse 48. What is he talking about? He's talking about how He has fulfilled Scripture by becoming the one spotless Lamb, by giving His life and shedding His blood, by being buried, as it is said in the Scripture, He would be buried, and by rising on that third day triumphant. These are the things that they are witnesses of. Those who desire to testify to the truth of the gospel must know the resurrected Jesus and bear witness of Him to others. Jesus is declaring to His disciples, essentially saying to them, you are witnesses of these things. You have seen with your own eyes. You have touched the holes in my hands. You have placed your hole, your hand in the hole of my side where I was pierced for you. You've broken bread with me. I am risen and I am physical and I am alive. And now I want you to tell the world what you've seen and experienced. You notice that Jesus didn't go to the Romans and reveal himself in risen form. He didn't stand in the presence of Pilate and say, you blew it, man. <laughs> Here I am. Couldn't keep me in the tomb. He didn't go back to those unbelieving Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes. He didn't go back to them and say, you got it all wrong. No, he went back to the ones who believed in him. They were going to be his witnesses. They were going to bear his testimony. And so if you want to share the gospel of Jesus, you've got to confess to the resurrection of Jesus. You've got to believe that he came back from the dead and that he is alive today. It's not enough to know that Jesus lived, taught, healed, and then just died. That's not enough. He must be alive today or your message is going to fall far short of the gospel. Look at how this truth has impacted the apostles. In the the beginning of of one of his letters, the apostle John, who was there for this great commissioning, John heard Jesus tell him this. He told him that he was a witness. John was one of the crowd. He sat there and listened and, and soaked that up. Now we fast forward several years, and John is now trying to direct the expansion of the churches and the growth of the kingdom. And he says in the beginning of this letter that he writes, 1 John chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our very hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You've got to see in that intro to his letter the echo of what Jesus told him to do as an apostle, that he was to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. And he is faithful to that calling. He is not going to miss that. He wants the people he's ministering to to know that the power that he has comes from Christ, the knowledge he has, it's from above, the wisdom, the salvation he has, it all comes from the son of God, whom he is teaching and bringing or teaching them, teaching to them and bringing them to. So that is the declaration. He has opened our eyes to scripture that, so that we might know him. We are now witnesses of the resurrection. Secondly, he gave a command. And that command is this: those who desire to testify to the truth of the gospel must be filled with the power from on high that comes only from him. This promise of power is not described in length here because remember, Luke's going on to write Acts. And in chapter 2, what happens? Pentecost happens. That power falls upon the church. The Holy Spirit becomes theirs. It indwells their hearts. And though they've been saved by the Spirit this whole time, now that Spirit is available to them as a power that makes it possible for them to go into the world and share boldly. That power that can only come from God makes us better witnesses because it opens up our understanding to Scripture. When you read the Scripture, if you're understanding it, it's because the Holy Spirit is helping you understand it, right? And if you have the boldness to get over your personal fears and to share what you believe with others... Where's that power coming from? The Holy Spirit. And if you're persecuted for what you believe in, and you might not think you're persecuted right now, but look at some of the legislation that's being passed right now in our state, and you'll see that persecution not far away. They just passed in the House a bill that makes it against the law to distribute literature, which would help somebody who thinks that, that homosexual lifestyle is wrong and wants to become straight. It's against the law to try to help them do that. You know what kind of legislature falls under that category? Bible of Jesus Christ. So if you are sharing the gospel of Jesus, and you're doing it boldly, and you're being persecuted for it, who gives you the power to endure that? The Holy Spirit gives you the power to endure that. We must trust in Jesus for our understanding, and we must trust desperately in Jesus for the power to the pe- be the people He's called us to be. And it's going to get harder and harder in this world to be that people the farther and farther our nation gets away from the gospel. We need that power. Just as knowledge is critical, so too do we need to rely on the strength of our God to make us more than we could possibly be by ourselves. And as you read in the book of Acts, and as you see that Holy Spirit working in the lives of the apostles, you see a boldness in them. You see a conviction. One of the greatest proofs that Jesus actually rose from from the dead is looking at the historical lives of the men who were closest to him. Of the twelve disciples, one Judas betrayed him, hung himself, so there are eleven disciples left. If you just watch the the history of those eleven disciples, ten out of the eleven, according to history, were killed for what they preached and believed. Their lives came to an often gruesome and grisly end because they said, I have seen this and it is real and I will not turn my back upon it. They tried to kill the 11th one, by the way, but the Holy Spirit preserved him again and again. That is John, who we just talked about. So all of those men who followed after Jesus as his disciples believed so firmly and trusted so much in the understanding they had from the the Holy Spirit and and, and relied so completely on the power of that Holy Spirit to endure that each one of them were faithful unto death. If Jesus is a made-up fairy tale, somebody's gonna give up. Somebody's going to turn around. Somebody's going to walk away. Somebody's going to say, I'd rather live. But that's not what happened. Look at history, folks. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, they were faithful even unto death. And so as we sit in this humble position of not having what it takes to be the good witnesses that we want to be, let us, as his people, reading this scripture, let us ask for greater understanding from the word. As we come before him, let us pray in our own hearts and pray together as a church that when we read this scripture together and we study it, that God would help it sink into our hearts and minds in such a way that we would really know what God wants us to know from it. Be asking the Lord for a greater understanding and a better knowledge. Seek him and find him. When you look at his scripture, when you pray that God would reveal more and more of himself to you. Secondly, pray for God to prepare the hearts of those whom we reach knowing that we don't have what it takes to convince others into the kingdom of heaven, that we cannot win any souls without the power of the Lord working in our lives, then let us all pray for God to prepare the hearts of those that we care about. If you have a loved one, if you have a neighbor, if you have a total stranger you want to share the gospel with, be in prayer that God would do what you can't do and turn their heart from a heart of stone into that heart of flesh upon which the new covenant can be written. Next, we need to reflect on on the testimony of God working in our own lives. You bear a testimony that has power. When you go to a friend and you say, historically these things happened, that's good. But when you can also point at your own self and say, look at what happened to me. I used to be a sinner. I used to care about the things of the world. I used to be lost and hopeless. I used to be desperate. My joy was depleted. And yet Christ interrupted my life. And I am new because of him. I testify Because I see the changes that Jesus has brought in my life. He is real. And finally, friends, we need to seek to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is the resource that He promised to us which will make us more effective at doing the work of the mission that we're called to. When we trust and believe that the Holy Spirit does more than just seal us and make us safe from hell, when we believe that God has given this Holy Spirit to us so that we can experience His abiding presence and that we can rely on it to do greater and better things that we could have ever done by ourselves, then God will use us. Let us be mindful of these things. Let us be praying for them. And let us keep in mind that the Lord has given us every provision that we need. There is nothing lacking if we trust in Him. Would you please bow with me as we close? God, we thank you for this day. and We thank you for the Word, which is filling us spiritually, Lord. We are hungry for more and more of it. And so we thank you, Father, that it is, theirs before, it is there before us every day and we can go to this well and drink of the living water that exists there. I pray, God, that we would not take our own intellectual powers uh, too seriously, Father, that we would recognize that though you have made us beings of knowledge uh, and beings that can reason and understand that you are far more wise than we could ever be, I pray that we would gladly submit ourselves to the truth uh, that is ours if we trust you. I pray, God, that we would be humble in knowing that our need is ever before us, Lord, that we cannot accomplish anything that's pleasing to you apart from your will. So please let us abide in the vine so that we might bear the fruit you have predestined us to bear. We thank you, Lord God, for the blessing of the church. And we ask that you would help us to be a church that has an evangelistic heart, that wants to reach the lost and bring them into a right relationship with you by your understanding and by your power. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.